We are indeed thankful that it's our privilege, isn't it, for you and I to be able to gather to assemble on this Sunday morning. The first day of the week is always so special because it is that day set aside in the Word of God for you and for me to assemble as God has commanded us. And today we're certainly thankful for the presence of each and every person. Not only our membership at Pippin, but the visitors who've come our way today it's our genuine desire that as we worship God in spirit and in truth, that all of us will be benefited and blessed and that God will be glorified by our activities. You may have noted by way of the title of the lesson this morning at least, The Matter of Race. May I go ahead and at least say by way of invitation, don't, don't forget about the 5.30 service this evening. Come and be a part of that with us as we again praise and exalt the name of God. The lesson tonight is going to touch upon a very fundamental question. As you've seen in the bulletin, how God spoke, how God speaks, and how do we know? I might offer there are very few things more basic and fundamental than what that lesson is going to attempt to present, so please make plans to be back with us this evening at the 5.30 hour. The lesson this morning is a very timely one in the sense that as I made determination some time ago about choosing this particular lesson, I decided to do so in light of some of the world affairs and some of the world matters that are currently troubling us. We all know on a daily basis what seems to be the case all across our land as individuals are prompted by, motivated by, troubled by what they appreciate as racism and things that in fact are selectively chosen in such a way that, let's say, certain groups of people consider themselves outcasts. I'm talking about the Black Lives Movement, Black Lives Matter movement and things like that. You know that that particular movement began a few years ago now, and it was basically addressed at that time for what they considered to be police brutality against black people. That is, unjust and vicious, aggressive activity directed toward those uh, of colored persuasion. But of course, in more recent times, the movement has evolved some, and now there are charges of abject white supremacy. They think that many white people consider themselves better and superior to those that are black. I thought today we might basically open the Word of God and ask, what does the Word of God have to say? about racism, about topics that would touch or relate to it. And Acts chapter 17 is where we shall rest much of our lesson this morning. If you'd be revisiting that passage, Brother Dennis read it a moment ago, verses 24 to 28 of Acts the 17th chapter. In a few moments as we arrive at that particular passage, we will give some attention to what was uttered on that, on that rather great occasion. For right now, as we close that slide and move to the next one. Our lesson text is basically going to be that passage to which I referred, and I would invite us to take a moment and set the setting of it. We have learned never to try and separate a passage from its context. What is the setting of this wonderful passage? I've tried to summarize some of that on this slide. The Apostle Paul, beginning in Acts 13, at that point began a series of what we often call missionary journeys, the various evangelistic tours. 
And yet as we arrive at the 17th chapter, we notice he's now on the second tour. The chapter begins, as you can see in verse 1, with his arrival at Thessalonica. He came to this place, and as he preached so boldly and powerfully in Thessalonica, you notice what quickly happened. Problems arose. There were unbelieving Jews that rose up in power, and so difficult did they make Paul's life there, and so threatening was the situation that you might quickly note with me, verse number 10, And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. Under cover of darkness, Paul, you see, had to leave Thessalonica, or at least the brethren encouraged him to leave, and he came to the city of Berea. Now these Bereans were very noble people. Verse 11 is a tremendous commendation of them. It says, These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so. The people in Berea, you see, though they didn't have a full Bible the way you and I have it today, the scrolls to which they had access was such that they searched it intently, examining to find whether or not the things that were being preached were in fact the inspired and delivered Word of God. What a high commendation, and certainly that pattern is very needful and important for you and for me today. But notice how the journey continues, as I've tried to highlight on the slide. The Bereans, we quickly learn in verse number 12, many of them believed also of honorable women which were Greeks, and of men not a few. But now you notice verse 13, more problems arose. Maybe a side lesson we could appreciate is those who labor in faithfulness to God are going to have challenges. They're going to have issues whereby their way is made more difficult. Look at verse 13. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of, God, of Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. Those people at Thessalonica that were against Paul and his preaching, they made the journey to Berea, and they caused trouble for him there. At that point, verse number 14 says, And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go as it were to the sea, but Silas and Timotheus abode there still. One more time, the brethren of Berea encouraged Paul to leave. The circumstance here has become sufficiently difficult, sufficiently dangerous. They urged him to leave. And notice, Silas and Timothy were left behind. But Paul, as we're about to learn in verse 15, came to Athens. Oh, what a great ancient city. A central city in the country of Greece. Paul came to Athens. Verse 15 reads, And they that conducted Paul brought him into Athens in receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus, for to come to him with all speed they departed. As you can see on the slide, Paul arriving at Athens, one of the greatest cities of the ancient era, a city known for its nobility, its learning, its intelligentsia, for those who gave their attention to learning and philosophy. Verse number 16 will say this, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred within him, 
when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Remember, Paul was here waiting in Athens for Silas and Timothy to come, and while he waited, he observed the people. He witnessed to that which they did. And you'll notice, he didn't just witness it. It says his spirit was stirred within him. Paul was bothered by what he saw. He was rather agitated by the conduct and behavior. What were they doing? Next verse. We notice that they were given to idolatry, and it says, Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons in the market daily with them that met with him. Paul didn't just remain silent. He disputed with those of that area in light of that which he had witnessed. And now, as you can see near the bottom of that slide, as Paul disputed with them, we're now about to observe a rather dramatic lesson, a sermon, if you please, that he delivered on that occasion. Beginning in verse 22, may I read? It says, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill, Mars Hill was a central discussion place in the city of ancient Athens. In other words, it was basically like what you and I might say is the lawn outside the courthouse. People could gather, listen to presentations, be moved by things as they were presented. Mars Hill is where Paul was speaking. Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after Him and find Him, though He be not far from every one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring." For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day, into which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead." That takes us through the end of verse number 31. And now with it, these comments will proceed to follow. First, a bit of a map. I realize that perhaps many of the actual cities are sufficiently small that it might be difficult to read them in detail. But could I just point out a few things? The arrow, the white arrow, illustrates the fullness of this second missionary tour. Paul began from Athens, which was located here, and proceeded to journey through what we would now call Asia Minor, arriving at the seacoast at this location. From there, you'll notice a bit of a ship travel to bring him into the continent of Europe. 
for the first time in all of the record of God, the gospel came to European soil. You see, this is Asia. This is Europe. Paul had been admonished in Acts 16, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And as he answered that, he came to Philippi, which is here, and then ultimately on to Thessalonica and to Berea. And we just read about it a moment ago. Now, as the Jews stirred up trouble for Paul, you'll notice he also ultimately left and came to Athens, which is located right here, the ancient city of Athens. You and I today still have somewhat an appreciation about the fact the Olympic Games began very much near that vicinity. For right now, you and I will turn the slide and appreciate the following. You'll notice that Paul preached about some things while here in Athens. And may I suggest that we observe these matters. I've just read for you a rather dramatic lesson that Paul taught. Did you note how short it was? Sermons don't necessarily have to be lengthy. The power and majesty of this one might be summarized with those ideas. Did you notice Paul directly asserted what these people were guilty of? You, in fact, ignorantly are worshiping God. Have you ever heard someone challenge someone else by calling them or their activities ignorant? Typically, we'd be rather defensive if someone told that to us. And yet, Paul boldly proclaimed those matters to those Athenians that in ignorance, they were worshiping the only true God. Now, with that, notice what else he told them. He exalted the trueness and the majesty and power of God. He created the world and everything in it. And he went on to say rather powerfully, did you note verse 28? In Him we live and move and have our being. Everything that we have that is in any way good is, of course, due to Him. Our life is due to Him. Perhaps finally, might I ask you to note this. Paul said there's coming a moment in judgment. The times of this ignorance, this kind of idolatry, maybe God once winked at, but He now commands all men everywhere to repent. That doesn't leave out any of us, just like it left out none of them. Men have to repent. We all do. And the reason in verse 31 is this. There's coming a day of judgment. Jesus the Christ Himself, as surely as God raised Him, there is going to be a moment in judgment. May you and I live with wisdom, understanding the nature of the fact one day we shall appear before the great presence of God and provide answer for the deeds done in the body. As you and I close that slide, may I ask that you note this. Some responded positively. Though I didn't read it, did you notice in verses 32 and 33 and 34? Some were thankful to hear the message that Paul delivered, but others mocked. They weren't so thrilled about it. Today, of course, something similar can be our lot. There are those who thrill at the thought of the gospel and love to hear its message, and others are not nearly as excited about it because it demands some changes. I can't live like this and please God. But now may I say that the heart of our message will be the development from this point forward. With that historical setting, what about the matter of race?
What in this would help us touch the issues of our life today and the issue of racism? The first observation is this one. I've entitled it Differences, but maybe it is a rather direct and obvious matter to be sure. Differences. There are differences in people. That's no great revelation. You and I know that. People who live in China, they don't look like we do. People who live in Australia, they speak differently than we do. You can tell their accent instantly. People who live up near the North Pole, they don't look like us either. God has vested in the human character those matters that can manifest themselves in such dramatic differences. Even in an audience such as this one, we don't all have the same hair color. We don't all have the same eye color. We don't have the same preferences as far as color of clothing. We get the idea. There are some obvious differences. The reason I showed that map earlier in part was this. As Paul himself was born in the city of Tarsus, Acts 22.3, you notice that he was raised and grew up in a certain place and with a certain environment. But you'll notice he is now in Berea and in Athens, a long, long way from where he grew up. Hundreds and hundreds of miles away, and those people would have looked a bit different. Their dialect would not have been the same. The accent, if you please, with which they spoke would not have been the same. In question, did Paul use that as a reason for observing those differences and treating them fundamentally differently? Clearly he did not. When he came to Athens, this place of intelligentsia, the learned people of the day were there. They probably behaved very, very differently than Paul did. Remember, he was raised a Jew, a very strict Jew. And yet, in this place, those differences lead me to point out this. Paul didn't make any observation about those differences. The same God that is to be worshipped in a certain way in the city of Antioch, you people in Athens, he said, need to worship that way as well. Differences, be they personal and character fundamentally, they don't make any difference in that, in that regard to God. For that reason, you might look at point number two. What is the basis of racism, or for that matter, the basis of any discussion like that? Is it not differences? That person's skin color is white, but that person's skin color is black. And therefore, that difference is utilized as the basis for treating that individual distinctly or fundamentally differently. But yet, when it comes to those differences, it boils down to an us-versus-them mentality. That person that's white, I'm white, and that person's not, so I'm going to treat him differently. I'm going to, in fact, declare certain things inaccessible to him. What basis is there in the Bible for this? Let's close that slide like this. And may I be in a position to state it like this. God has absolutely no concern for the color of a person's skin. Absolutely none. What God does have concern with is a person's behavior. And a white person's behavior, 
a black person's behavior, a brown person's behavior, a red person's behavior. God does have concern for that because there are things you see that you and I can't change. I can't change the color of my skin. The black man can't change the color of his skin. But again, that doesn't determine acceptability to God. What does determine that is our behavior. The white person has a conduct that God expects of him. The black person has a conduct God expects of him. And that kind of conduct, as we learn in the Word of God, is not distinguished. The black person is supposed to worship God the same way a white man does. There's no difference between us and them, Acts 15, 9. And isn't it interesting, as we close that slide, several times in the Bible this interesting statement is made. God is no respecter of persons. Now we often, I suppose, read that in the place it's found there in Romans chapter 2. And we appreciate that as Paul addressed the church in Rome with those famous words, it highlights that whether there was Jew or Gentile, God was no respecter of that person, but expected obedience faithfully of each one. Today, let's apply that premise to other avenues like, again, race. That person that happens to have been born in Africa is subject to the same gospel as that person born here in Tennessee. That person born in Australia or in Malaysia or in China. Isn't it interesting in that light, or at least in that consideration, that as God points out His the fact He is no respecter of persons, there are several different verses that set that idea before us. Colossians 3.25 is another one. Finally, I might ask you to note Deuteronomy 10.17, even in the Old Testament. This second point of our lesson has at least challenged us to appreciate that as God from heaven looks upon us, He doesn't see skin color. What He sees is the heart. And what He sees is one who is supposed to be obedient, regardless of skin color. Point number three will then be this one. Let's draw a rather strong conclusion, at least in light of some of these matters. To then treat a person based on skin color as fundamentally, let's say, separated in such a dramatic way, well, that by itself would be a wrong behavior. Because Paul never did, and as we've noted, God doesn't either. Look at some of these considerations, and let's use Acts 17.26 as our guide. As Paul stood before that audience in Athens, he said, Speaking of God, He hath made of one blood all nations of men. All nations of men everywhere are of one blood. Allow that to sink in if you would. Now the word blood, as of course it appears in that King James translation, is a word that may look differently if you're reading in other translations. And so, I have asked you to note the American Standard rendering. He has made of one every nation of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed seasons and the bounds of their habitation. 
may I invite you to notice, it is of one that God has made all nations everywhere. The individuals, the citizens, if you please, have been made of one. There is one human family. Now here we're speaking about the physical, biological record, if you please, of life. There's one human family, and God has made it of one. Isn't that a remarkable thought? Among other things, that of course means that that unity, that oneness, allows us to see that though skin color may be different, there is one human family. I think it's a bit interesting to observe that blood transfusions, a black man can give a blood transfusion to a white man and vice versa. That aspect, that basic matter is of not an issue and distinction. But here you'll notice that Paul rather boldly stood in Athens 2,000 years ago and said that there is one nationality of the human family. If only we could then appreciate and not let that issue, let's say, in skin color or in other matters of appearance be the directing guide to determine an us versus them mentality. Black people need the gospel just like we do. Those of any persuasion need it just like we do. For that reason, look at how this proceeds. Paul boldly went on to say, "...hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation." I find it intriguing that the bounds of their habitation is mentioned. Is it true that there are certain places upon the planet where it is typically appreciated certain skin colors of people live? We know that light-skinned people, you see, tend to live in certain places, and those darker-skinned peoples tend to live at others, often near the equator. May I suggest there are things that help us appreciate biologically why that might well be. But you'll notice here is asserted that God determined the bounds of such things. One more thing in verse 28. In Him we live and move and have our being. And Paul was quick to even quote what some of the poets of that day had asserted. We are His offspring, regardless of skin color. I know that there's a great deal of emotion and tension that tends to be present in our day as it speaks to racist matters. The Word of God helps us appreciate, does it not, that there is much beyond that. And the fourth point then will lead us to appreciate the following. Let's transition the slide and see what it looks like. What should be our thinking then that would be consistent with the Bible? as it touches a subject such as this one. We just read in verse 28, We owe to God every good thing we have, including our life. The life that you and I enjoy, the physical things that are a part of it, the very existence of the capability of breath and the activities of the mind. All of that's due to the design and to the basic consideration of what God has made available. But with that, look at this. God has showered 
such tremendous love and goodness then upon everybody. Didn't Jesus say that the rain and the sunshine comes upon each one? Matthew 5.45 Now that's true whether one's skin color be white or whether it be black. We each enjoy the beneficial hand of God in that regard. But notice what quickly follows. What is ultimately most significant is that all of us are headed toward judgment. Aren't you thankful that God is correct in His judgment? Aren't you thankful He's right and doesn't judge you or I based on something like color of skin or other matters such as that? Fantastically, we notice in verse number 30, the times of this ignorance God winked at. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. I think it's rather amazing. As you visualize that lesson that day, here was Paul in the midst of a group of people. We don't know all the skin colors that may have been present in the Athenian audience. After all, it's only a short jaunt across the Mediterranean Sea and you're at Africa. Could there have been some black individuals present? Probably. At least it's likely. But notice Paul here said, the point is, in significance, let's serve God faithfully. The times of this ignorance God winked at, now all men need to repent. Everybody needs to live faithfully in obedient matters to the gospel. It's tragic that men throughout the centuries have chosen to treat others in such a way that the respect of God, the the fact that God is no respecter of persons, does not seem to have been manifested in the life and minds of many. Treating people as different based on something like color of skin, declaring certain things as inevitably true because of that skin color, and sometimes withholding from them the other kinds of blessings that men at one time or another have enjoyed. Paul said in verse 26, God has made of one all nations of men. That unity and that oneness brings you near the bottom of that slide. There are several times in the Bible, not just here, when at least the subject of racism or what would go right along with it is a matter that is interestingly presented. In Genesis 46... You might recall there, you and I find an interesting situation in which the descendants of Jacob found themselves in Egypt. They had gone there peacefully, protection from the famine. But a statement is made about the difference in behavior. You'll notice Egyptians despised shepherds, and yet that's what the livelihood was of the people of Israel. Well, there was a matter in distinction, and God put His people in the midst of a group of other people who despise shepherds. Doesn't that sound interesting? Wasn't that something to help the Israelites learn about the characteristic of God's making? That there are differences in people and choices that some make. Now, God didn't have anything against shepherds, but the Egyptians did. Look at another example. In Revelation 1, verse 5, there as we arrive at the book of Revelation, here, of course, that last book in the Bible, and the people 
found themselves under great persecution by the Roman authorities. And yet, you'll notice something interesting. Even those who pierced the side of Jesus are going to be appreciated as seeing Him. Now, Jesus was very different than, let's say, a, a traditional Roman. And yet, something about the unity, the togetherness, something about the full description of the human family is at least highlighted in that statement. But maybe it's fair to conclude this lesson as well as that observation with a discussion. I think Brother Dennis led us through at least a part of that on two separate lessons, the Ethiopian eunuch. There was a eunuch from Ethiopia, quite likely a black man. And yet he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now in Jerusalem, of course, may have been people of very different color. We don't know what kind of person Philip was in terms of skin color, but what God said is, join yourself, Philip, to the chariot. If the eunuch was a black man and Philip was not, that certainly was no impediment to him. It certainly was not a matter of even something that was mentioned in that passage. What was mentioned was the Word of God. And a man who was open to the gospel and a man who obeyed it. Isn't it fantastic to see the unity of the human family as the way God at least designed it? Let's close our lesson with this statement of conclusion. It's been our goal to at least think from Acts 17 today about racism and the way the human family at least on occasion has chosen to behave. God looks upon the heart and He wishes for one and all to faithfully obey Him. It might be today that in this assembly there's somebody who for whatever reason, it may have nothing to do with racism, but maybe you have chosen to live in a way that is not pleasing to God. Please realize the urgency of the moment. You need to be right with God. There is nothing more important than that. If we could be of assistance to you today, we'd, it'd be our honor to do it. Would you not believe then that Jesus is in fact the Son of God? Repent of your sins, whatever they have been. Confess the great name of Jesus as the only begotten Son of God and be baptized for the remission of your sins. The Word of God promises that those sins will be forgiven. You'll be introduced into the family, namely of the church, and in that family, regardless of color of skin, you can enjoy brotherhood and sisterhood with those of like precious faith and journey toward the golden climb of heaven together. And that kind of description is beautiful and powerful and meaningful. If you have become a Christian at some former time in life, but as of today, you're not faithful. Why not come back to your first love? Come back to the Savior that died for all, not just for a selected few. 1 John 2 verse 2. If we could help you in that way, we'd be delighted to pray to God on your behalf. If you will confess and repent of your sins, He'll forgive you. The gospel invitation is extended. While this song of encouragement has been announced, we're going to use it as a time, a convenient one, to invite anyone to come that might wish to do that. And if we could be of help, let us know while together we stand and while we sing.